Let's turn to the book of Colossians again this morning. I believe this is the fifth message that I've given from this book. And it's a tremendous account, a tremendous letter here that Paul wrote to these Christians in Colossae who were facing various difficulties but seemed to be pressing on with the Lord. This was written around 60 A.D. Paul was in prison. He says at the end of the letter, remember my chains. In other words, remember me in prison at this time. And what, uh, what we'll do again this morning is just read a few sections here to get a feel. He starts out this letter just exalting Christ. And uh, let me just point out a few examples of this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything." I think the King James says preeminence in everything. And then if you skip over to chapter 2, verse uh, 9, 9 and 10. For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. And then just this small phrase in chapter 3, verse 11, at the end of the verse there. Christ is all and in all. So we've been looking at this letter in terms of, we began just looking at how Paul exalts Christ. And uh, the tremendous view he had of who Christ was and what he's done for every Christian, and his complete power and dominion over all, and his full sufficiency for anything that comes to the Christian. And what we're looking at today then, we've been zeroing in on certain aspects of Paul taking that truth of the full sufficiency of Christ and applying it in practical areas of the Christian life. We've been looking at the family situation here lately. Uh, which he deals with beginning in chapter uh, 3, verse 18. But we'll, we'll, we'll skip right to the verse we want to deal with today, which is verse 21, Colossians 3, 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. And then we've said that Colossians was actually written before Ephesians, and uh, Paul expands on the things that he says in Colossians in the book of Ephesians, 
So let's turn back to Ephesians just to get the parallel passage here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, 4. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I don't plan ahead. I'm not very good at that. I didn't plan for this to, to fall on Father's Day. But it did. So, uh, we have to take that as the providential timing of God because it's not from my planning ability. <clears throat> We've pointed out that this letter can be roughly divided into two parts. The first two chapters, which lay out the great doctrinal teachings concerning the preeminence and sufficiency of Christ. And it's probable that Paul was emphasizing those things because he was combating a form of Gnosticism that taught that Christ was not sufficient for the full salvation of every Christian. So he, he hits on that in various places in the first two chapters. He clearly refutes those false teachings by showing that Christ is all and in all. He's everything for every Christian. Then he goes on in the last two chapters to focus on what we have said, the practical applications of that. Paul always was concerned to show that, doc that doctrinal truth had practical application. And uh, we've been looking then at this section in chapter 3, which deals with family relations and seeing how the sufficiency of Christ relates to the husband and wife relationship the parent -child and the parent-child relationship. And last time, that's what we looked at, the area concerning children honoring their father and mother. So what we want to do today then is go on and look at some of the Christian parents' responsibility toward the child. That's what we're looking at this morning, the Christian parents' responsibility towards their children. I just wanted to start with a quote from Vance Havner here. He said, No man or woman ever had a nobler challenge or a higher privilege than to bring up a child for God. And whenever we slight that privilege or neglect that ministry for anything else, we will live to mourn it in heartache and grief. So he's saying, he's just bringing out the importance of this thing of Christian parenthood. Now what Paul says in Colossians and Ephesians about the parents' attitudes and actions toward the child, especially the father's responsibility, was really quite revolutionary in the culture of his day. That's because at that time in most societies, the man had absolute authority over his wife and his children. In ancient Rome, for example, men held almost complete power in the family. The pater familias, that is the father of the family, had absolute rule over his household and his children. If they angered him, he had the legal right to disown his children, to sell them into slavery, or even kill them. Now you've got to let that sink in. That's the situation Paul was speaking into. Uh, The, the father could determine when the child was born, when that child was born, whether they wanted to keep that child or not. Often they exposed their children. They put them out 
just figuring somebody would pick them up and raise them as slaves. That was the kind of situation Paul was speaking into here. Terrible, terrible, sinful situation. In light of this, consider how radical these words are that we just read. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. And in Ephesians, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Those were powerful words to these these fathers back in that culture in the first century. And they're still powerful words for us today and important words for us. We'll look at this verse in Colossians first, and then we'll look at what Paul says in Ephesians about bringing up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me just quote this Colossians verse in a couple other translations to get a little more feel for it. The NIV says, Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. The New King James says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Philip's paraphrase puts it this way, puts it this way Fathers, do not overcorrect your children, or they will grow up feeling inferior and frustrated. It's obviously a paraphrase, but I think that's part of what Paul was thinking about here. So you have, if you put all those together, we're not to exasperate, not to embitter, not to provoke, not to overcorrect our children. So what I would like to do this morning then is just look at some ways that we as fathers particularly might be doing this, might be failing in this area. But first, let me just address why he addresses this to fathers and not to the parents in general. Possibly because the fathers are to set the overall atmosphere of the home. Perhaps he addresses fathers specifically because of the greater disciplinary responsibility that rests upon the father as head of the household. In either case, these exhortations would also apply to the mother. Both these things apply to both parents. Uh, maybe, as John Wesley thought, fathers were specifically designated because they were more apt to be stern and severe. Um, in that culture, that certainly was true. Uh, if you remember the things we've mentioned here about the Roman culture of that day. So, what are some ways that we might exasperate our children? Before I start in on this list, uh, let me just say there's, there's quite a number here. So it might be good just for each of us to ask God to show us one or two of these things that we might really need to work on in our own particular situation. These all won't apply to, to all of us, but I mean as far as things that we need to work on. But perhaps God will show us, each one of us, uh, certain areas that we need to ask God to help us in. Areas that maybe in the next few months by the grace of God, we could make some substantial change in. So, what's the, the first area? I would say would be the area of, of absence. Just being absent. Father just not being around. Not there when he's needed. Now, I'm not thinking so much of the father that abandons his children. That is a real problem in our society. Uh, uh, it's uh, a lot of 
situations like that, and, and I think a lot, a lot of the inner city problems are caused because of of uh, the fact that fathers just aren't there to raise their children. But that's not particularly what I'm thinking of here. I'm t- thinking of the father who's just not part of the child's life. In such a situation, the child gets the impression that he or she is not worth spending time with, that the father really doesn't care about what's going on in the child's life. That's, that's a form of what we're talking about, an absence. There, there's an emotional absence, you might say, uh, for that child. So that's a, that's a way to exasperate uh, a child. Almost on the other extreme would be a father who is legalistic and dictatorial in the home. That would be the domineering dad. The home is not meant to be a military school with dad as the drill sergeant. That's not the way God set up homes. Uh, In such a situation, the child can easily become exasperated because for a child to grow up secure... They need both love and limits. Yes, the father should be setting limits, but there has to be love and limits. Uh, Limits that are clear, but love that's clearly expressed. I think some of you have probably heard this little phrase from Josh McDowell, but I think it's a good one. He says, rules without relationship bring rebellion. Rules without relationship brings rebellion. So, yes, there must be limits, but it's limits with love. And the emphasis, I think, should be on the love part, not the limits part. We need to limit the limits and lavish the love. Don't make more rules, rules than are necessary. Sincere little words of appreciation and encouragement are big things to children. And I think I should probably emphasize that it's not just words by themselves that communicate love. It's talking with your children in ways that show a deep interest and a strong desire to be involved in their lives. Children sense that, you know. So, legalistic, dictatorial, domineering, not the way. That would be a way to exasperate your child. Along that same line would be harsh words, harsh criticism, and harsh punishment. Under this heading, you could put the use of ridicule or shame to try to get your point across or motivate your child. That's, that is a way to exasperate your child. Name-calling, teasing, or embarrassing them in, in public. Being sarcastic and, and belittling them. Sometimes we think that we can get our point across that way, but it's really counterproductive. We should remember not to focus on faults. One writer said this, he said, What seems like a small chisel of criticism to you can feel like a crushing hammer to them. 
Also, if we leave the impression that our children rarely, if ever, please us, we will exasperate them. Sadly, we often focus on wrong behavior that needs to be corrected and not on what is right and commendable. We need to look for those things sometimes and emphasize them. We don't encourage and affirm progress they're making, but rather communicate dissatisfaction and disappointment, pointing out how far short they fall. A critical spirit can paralyze family relationships, as can overreacting to minor failures, making a mountain out of a molehill. We need to try to balance reproof with praise and not be nitpicking about everything the child does, not turning every failure into a mini-sermon. Let me just add a, a word here on harsh punishment. The Bible certainly has much to say about punishment when a child behaves badly. There's no question about that. Many things about use of the rod. But it must be appropriate punishment. And that will not be the case. It will not be appropriate punishment if we react in anger and lose control. Now, sometimes we can be angry. You're angry about the sin. But if you lose control you're not going to teach that child about self-control. If our punishment is overboard, we're likely to provoke the child to anger, not to better behavior. Number four, unrealistic expectations. Demanding too much from a child too soon. We must have age-appropriate expectations or our child will be exasperated when they try to do what we tell them to do. They won't be able to do it. If our children believe that they can't please us, they will eventually lose heart and quit trying. Development takes time, and different children develop at different rates. Usually, if pride, impatience, and perfectionism do not get in the way Parents have a pretty good idea what a child is capable of. Unfortunately, these three things, pride, perfectionism, and impatience, often come together. Because of pride, we want our children to appear perfect, and when they do not, we become impatient. And because of this trio of wrong desires, children can easily lose heart. Along this line, I think it's important to realize that as a child gets older and is capable of thinking things through better, we need to let them know we want more and more to hear their opinion on things. As one writer put it, you may not agree with your children's reasonings, conclusions, or opinions, But if you are going to lead them into the truth, you'll need to understand their perspective. Moreover, by not attempting to understand his or her perspective, 
you may communicate such sinful attitudes as arrogance, impatience, apathy, or lack of love. If something is important to them, it should be important to us as parents. We need to listen to what they're saying. Unrealistic expectations. That's the heading we're under here. So we need to be careful about pride and perfectionism and impatience producing unrealistic expectations on our part. And that kind of leads into the next area, which is comparing our children with others, comparing our children with other children. The famous phrase, why can't you be like so-and-so? Or maybe even worse, why can't you be like I was when I was your age? We have marvelous memories of how good we were. Well, watch out for those type of comparisons. Such statements can make a child feel inferior and substandard. Comparing children with children or ourselves when we were children is almost always harmful, causing a child to lose heart. And, again, somewhat similar to that, favoritism. Being unfairly partial to one child over another, that is really deadly in a family. For example, one child may be good at sports where the other one isn't, but the father is really into sports, so he favors that athletic child. This can certainly exasperate the non-athletic child and cause them to lose heart. The same thing, of course, can be said for a hundred different areas. Academics, one child is really capable of uh, good things academically, another is not. One, One is more musical, another is not. You can go into so many areas. Be careful about this thing of favoritism. Uh, in Scripture, we see this sad situation played out with the example of Isaac and Rebekah and their children. Isaac favored Esau. Now, this is, this is incredible. Isaac favored Esau above Jacob for the rather selfish reason that he liked to eat wild game. On the other hand, Rebecca seemed to prefer Jacob. That was not a good situation, and it had bad results in the family. Of course, there were problems on the children's side, too. I'm not uh, ne- uh, negating that, but some of it surely had to do with this thing of favoritism. Children are, are all different from one another and must be treated as individuals with different personalities, abilities, and needs. But there should be an equality of love and care for each. Now, I do want to put a little caution in here for the children to think about. You cannot and should not misinterpret a parent's actions as favoritism 
when that's not really the case. For example, you have the elder brother and the account of the prodigal son. Basically, what that elder brother was saying was that you're, you're favoring your, your son, your pro, the prodigal, the one that went off and did all these things. And, uh, you know, when the father throws the banquet there, he says, you know, why you haven't done that for me? Uh, the father answered that by saying, listen, I've always cared for you. I still care for you and I will care for you. But your brother was lost. He, had a, he was in a special situation, a special need, and I gave him a special welcome back. See, that's not favoritism. That's just recognizing a, a specific situation, needing some specific love and care and rejoicing. It's not a double standard. It's love that discerns a special situation. So I have to be careful about calling things favoritism that aren't favoritism. And then lastly, I would say there's this area of hypocrisy. And I put this together with another one, hypocrisy and not admitting when we're wrong as parents. But hypocrisy, you know, the child is in the situation to see what you're really like because he lives in the home and he knows what you're like. So if you're one way at home and another way out in public, the child sees that. <clears throat> Teaching our children one thing and doing another, not keeping promises, and not apologizing when we're wrong damages trust between us and our children. Asking forgiveness when we've sinned actually can help the child. You know, we tend to think, well, they won't think as much of me. No, that's not true they'll get more of an idea of what it really means to follow God. They'll see that you are also under God's authority. It can help them to learn to ask forgiveness for their sin. So we need to model the values and beliefs we hold them accountable to. They need to see it in our lives. Whatever standards we're setting for them, we better keep. Well, I want to go on then and deal with this additional phrase that Paul adds in Ephesians. We've just been talking about so far not exasperating our children, not embittering them, not provoking them. But Paul adds this little phrase in Ephesians. Bring them up, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there, there's a little more here than what we've looked at. And there are many things I think that we could say about what this phrase means, the discipline, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But I'd like to approach it from the standpoint of bringing up our children with a proper respect in nine different areas. A proper respect now, when I, he says bring them up, and I think that means to teach not just by word, but by example. To bring them up, teaching by word and example, by verbal instruction, and also by how children see us live as parents. 
That's how you bring them up in the nurture and instruction, the discipline of the Lord. And I really think by far the greatest influence will be our example, not so much our specific teaching of them through what we tell them, but our example. Again, I quote a writer here that says, the most influential of all educational factors is the conversation in a child's home. Now, he doesn't mean just the talking. He means a whole, the whole atmosphere of the home. The most influential of all educational factors is the conversation in a child's home. What a child sees and what they hear in the home will shape their character traits as a child more than just about anything else. And I'll, uh, those children are learning all the time. Every moment of every day in the home, they're learning. As they see and hear what goes on in the home. They're learning how people talk to one another. How they should talk to other, one another. Or how they're just learning by the interactions they see. They're learning how love is expressed. How people get attention how a home functions. So the atmosphere in our homes is very important. Does your family, does my family, hear loving words or strife-filled words? Considerate words or selfish words? Complimentary words or demeaning words? Quiet words or harsh words? I think just as an overall attitude, we should just remember that all our teaching and discipline should be done in the loving spirit and purpose with, with which our Heavenly Father teaches and disciplines us. That's our standard. So, that was all to get around to to what I want to say here in terms of nine areas of respect that we should teach and model to our children that they might be brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And as we go through these, I think you'll see that almost all of them are, are downplayed and derided in our present culture. They're not things they're going to hear uh, from the culture in general. So first of all, first area of respect would be respect for God and His Word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You have to start there. In fact, all these other respects, all these other things I'm going to mention all flow from this foundation. Right thoughts and right actions all start with reverence for God. And I probably don't need to tell you this, but I'm talking about more here than just taking time to read the Bible with your children. We're talking about a lifestyle where children see their parents living under God and His Word. That's what, that's what the children need to see. You living under God and under His Word. So, 
just in this first area of respect, are we teaching by word and example a respect for God and his word? The next area is respect for parents. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on that because that's what we looked at last week when we talked about children honoring and obeying their parents. But this morning I just want to emphasize that we need to be respectable as parents. This means being fair, honest, real, acknowledging our failures, admitting our many imperfections. We also need to set the example as parents by respecting our own parents if we want our children to learn to respect us as parents. They'll see how you treat your parents if if they're still alive. They'll see how you're treating your parents and that'll help them to see if you're doing it properly. It'll help them to see how they should treat their parents. Do our children see us respecting our parents and living in ways that are respectable? The next area, respect for elders. Respect for elders. I'm not talking about the church elders here. I'm talking about older adults in general. Uh, This is one our culture is really deficient in. Children need to be taught to respect their elders and they need and we need to demonstrate this before them also. Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged. There's a command from God. Honor the ages, aged. You know, we've got, our society just pushes them aside and says, well, you know, we're the new generation. We got, you know, we're the progressive we got it all figured out. We don't need to listen or care about. It's, it's a wrong attitude. So respect for elders. And then respect for peers. This is number four. Respect for peers. That is other children. Children need to be taught to be kind and courteous while at the same time not giving in to peer pressure. Now this is a, this is a balance here where you teach people, you teach your children to be uh, kind and loving to their their siblings and other children, and yet not be influenced by all the peer pressure that would be put on them to do things that are wrong. They need to be taught how to disagree with other children respectfully. They need to be taught about not making insensitive and hurtful remarks or using using derogatory nicknames. So again, much of this is taught by how parents show respect for their peers. How do you interact with people? Especially, as parents, how do you interact with one another as husband and wife? Children need to see their parents respecting each other in the home. One of the most important things a father can do for his children is to love their mother And one of the most important things a mother can do for her children is to show respect and love for their father. So, parents, are we coming across to our children as if we are superior to our peers 
to other people? Do we show proper respect to others? Other people as made in the image of God, even if we disagree with them on something? Respect for peers. The next area, respect for position. What you might, uh, probably a better way would be respect for authority. There's another one that our society is. I mean, this is eroding very quickly in our present society. We need to respect those in authority, even when we may not agree with their policy or practice. Teachers, pastors, police, governing authorities, and so forth. Paul says this, Peter says this, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. We're supposed to, our basic attitude towards those in authority should be one of submission, not rebellion. That's, like I say, not something that is uh, very common in our culture today. So we need to emphasize it. Our children need to be taught respect for authority, and they need to see us endeavoring to do this. It's true that there are times for disobedience and resistance to authority that's being abused, but that that should be a last resort. The basic attitude for the Christian and what we want to teach our children is respect and submission to authority. So, respect for position. The next one, this would be number six, respect for God's world. We're talking here about nature, but a better name is creation. We want to teach you respect for God's world without lapsing into an unbiblical environmentalism. We need to teach our children to be stewards of God's creation. You know, all, I think the simplest way is just to say, ultimately, all this stuff belongs to God, so we better take good care of His stuff. He's just letting us use it for a while. So along with this would come an appreciation for the beauty and bounty that God has put here for our enjoyment, just an appreciation of the world that God's given, a respect for it. Um, the flowers, the sunsets, the birds, the, the, the rivers, the skies are things that he put here for us to use and enjoy, not to abuse and destroy. Again, we've got to set the example for our children in this. And we can do that by even simple things, like how you keep your yard. I'm just trying to be practical here. Uh, we're teaching our children all the time by how we live. And, uh, you, you know, you might say, well, how's this keeping my property? What's that have to do with bringing up my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it. Finding the right balance between not piddling our time away, digging up every new dandelion that pops up, 
on the one hand and not allowing things to become overgrown and trashed out on the other is teaching your children important things. So, that was under the heading of respect for God's world. Respect for others' property. That was God's property, the whole world. But we also need to teach our children respect for others' property. Children need to be taught to be careful about how they use other people's things. Like when they're at someone else's house, they need to treat their furniture and belongings with care. That's not your stuff, that's their stuff. Parents teach this by how, by how they take care of things, uh, things they borrow, for instance. How do you take care of those things? Children see that. And uh, the respect you show for other people's property in general. So respect for others' property. Here's a big one. Respect for work and helping others. Respect for work and just a respect for, for service, for serving others. Having a good work ethic and a desire to serve. That means that we don't view work and serving others as something to avoid, but something to do well for the glory of God and the good of others. Laziness and complaining about work does not glorify God. Doing well at whatever God calls us to does please Him. Diligent work will also enable us to take care of our own family and then usually have something left over something to give to others. And all that teaches generosity and service. <coughs> but you won't do that if you have a wrong, <coughs> wrong attitude towards work. Um, we haven't looked up many verses, so let's just look up a couple here if, in Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 28. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who is in need. So just a basic principle here. Just be diligent in your work so that you can take care of yourself, your family, and have something to share with those in need. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 11 and 12. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. In other words, don't be thinking you should be living off somebody else's labor. Work yourself. Provide for yourself. And then you'll have... You'll have a good testimony as a Christian that way. And you'll, you'll also have something to share with those in need. You'll be able to help others. So, respect for work and helping others. 
And then lastly, respect for self. It's not unbiblical to have a good self-respect, but it is unbiblical if you put that at the top of the list. I put it at number nine. Self-respect should come and will come as a result of exercising these previous forms of respect. If we try to emphasize self-respect without emphasizing these other areas, it will become an egotistical, self-centered thing. But a healthy self-respect will flow naturally from a right respect for God and other people. These other things we've talked about here. You do those things and you will have a a healthy, godly self-respect. But if you try to put it at the first of the list, it'll it'll be a self-centered thing. Well... Those are nine areas of respect. A few things to consider as we seek to not exasperate our children and to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I just want to say, you know, some of these things may sound simple. They're not. Uh, It takes the grace of God, the power of Christ in our lives to do them well. See, that that's the whole point of what Paul's doing here in Colossians. He's saying Christ is fully sufficient for every need we have as a Christian. And he's fully sufficient for you as a Christian parent to live this way. It's part of the salvation that Christ has brought that we can be godly parents. It's, it's a big part. If God's called you to marriage and parenthood, His, Christ's full salvation includes these very practical things. And I also want to say that I just, uh, I know that as a parent, and Renee would say this too, we were imperfect in these things as we've raised our children. But we are thankful for the grace of God that can help us in these areas and change us in these areas and and cover some of these areas where we've failed. There's only been one perfect parent, and we all need to keep looking to him for help and pointing our children to him. And he... You know, there's lots of different family situations represented here. I just say this in closing. He, he can be a father to the fatherless. That's Psalm 68.5. Even if you didn't have a father that fulfilled some of these things that we've looked at here today, God is there. God is capable of making up for those years that the locust ate. Father of the fatherless.